I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 8th. Today, sex trafficking charges for financier Jeffrey Epstein, the man who helped Donald Trump get into business school, and the war over Parmesan cheese. Good morning. I'm Jeff Berman, United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Today, we announce the unsealing of sex trafficking charges against Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein is a very, very, very wealthy financier, kind of a politically connected guy. He kind of manages other people's money and not like my or your money, like millionaires and billionaires money. So he himself has become very wealthy from that. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post, and he's been reporting on these new charges against Jeffrey Epstein. The charges allege that Epstein sexually abused young girls by enticing them to engage in sex acts for money. Epstein was arrested this past Saturday evening at Teterboro Airport aboard his private jet that had just landed from Paris, France. The main thing to know about him is that he's wealthy and well-connected. And when you talk about well-connected, I mean, that's well-connected to people like Bill Clinton and President Trump. Yes, those are probably the two most notable connections that he has. But because of his wealth, he's had kind of associations with all sorts of people like Kevin Spacey, for example. But in terms of the political realm, yeah, former President Bill Clinton for one and then President Trump, too. And what has happened to Jeffrey Epstein over the course of the past 72 hours? Jeffrey Epstein was in Paris. He flew back on Saturday on his private jet, one of his private jets, uh, into Teterboro Airport in New Jersey. He was arrested there by the FBI. He was taken to MCC, the Federal Detention Center in New York, the same place that El Chapo is being held. When he was arrested on Saturday, right around the same time he was arrested on Saturday, uh, investigators raided this huge mansion that he owns in Manhattan, maybe the biggest property in Manhattan, period. And they found hundreds, uh, potentially thousands of uh, images, nude or partially nude images of young girls. Then today, he's going to appear in court. And today, the charges against him were unsealed, alleging that he had abused dozens of young girls as young as 14 uh, over the scope of about a three, four-year period, 2002 to 2005. But what's strange is that Jeffrey Epstein has has faced similar charges in the past, more than a decade ago. He has faced very similar allegations. He pleaded guilty in 2008 to two state charges having to do with prostitution. 
But that was to resolve very, very similar allegations to what he faced today, allegations from dozens of women, some very young, that he had sexually abused them. So what he's charged with today is very similar to what he's been accused in the past. He's sort of a doubly interesting figure aside from that he's a wealthy wheeler dealer and that he got a very, very sweet deal back in 2008 to just plead guilty to a couple of state charges for dozens of allegations. So ultimately, back when these charges uh, came about a decade ago, he was given a pretty lenient sentence. In the minds of many people, very, very lenient. So he had faced allegations very similar to what he did today. And today's charges, it's a little weird because today's charges, if they were brought today for conduct that happened today, would be a mandatory minimum of 10 years and a maximum of life. Because they're old, the law was different then. So it's a 45-year sentence that he's he would be looking at. Um, but that's a, such a far cry from what he, he faced back in 2008. He pleaded guilty not to federal charges. He wasn't even charged in federal court just to two state charges. He ended up spending about 13 months in jail. Um, and I say spending in jail. He was also allowed work release. He got out for many hours a day to go to this office and work, which is very unusual for someone who's destined to be a registered sex offender. So he got what many people would say is a very, very lenient deal given the allegations that he faced back then. So why was it that back then he did get such a lenient deal and is that being scrutinized now? The short answer is we don't have a very decisive answer on why he got such a good deal. His victims say that it was because he was wealthy and well-connected. He hired a super powerful defense team that included Alan Dershowitz, who I'm sure many people know from television. His lawyers were able to secure kind of personal meetings with the U.S. attorney himself, uh, Alex Acosta, who's now Trump's labor secretary. So the victims here say he got a sweet deal because he's well-connected. If he was anybody else, if he wasn't Jeffrey Epstein, he would not have gotten such a great deal. Alex Acosta has sort of defended the deal he got, sort of, by saying, look, this guaranteed he went to jail. Uh, it was only for 13 months, but this arrangement guaranteed he went to jail, for whatever that's worth. So that was all a decade ago. But how did it end up that many of these charges are kind of being rehashed? Part of the reason there's renewed attention on this is because the prosecutor at the center of it, Alex Acosta, is Trump's labor secretary. And this issue came up as he was going through the confirmation process. Lawmakers asked him about why uh, he allowed this deal that gave Epstein such lenient treatment to go through. I want to just read this. In 2007, Acosta signed a non-prosecution deal in which he agreed not to pursue federal charges against Epstein or four women who the government said procured girls for him. In exchange, Epstein agreed to plead guilty to a solicitation charge in state court, accept a 13-month sentence, register as a sex offender, and pay restitution to the victims identified in the federal investigation. Quote, this agreement will not be made part of any public record, the deal between Epstein and Acosta says. What is the reason why a deal of this kind has the specification that it will not be made part of any public record. 
investigative journalists really dug into this. We at The Post had a big story about how Alex Acosta had kind of shelved this big federal indictment that could have resulted in him going to jail for life or going to prison for life. The Miami Herald has done some great reporting on this. So that kind of drew a ton of attention to his case. Victims also sued. They filed civil lawsuits alleging wrongdoing. Because of that, because of the investigative journalism and other factors, federal prosecutors in New York, FBI agents in New York start looking at this. He has homes in Florida and New York, and they allege today that he would fly between them and abuse victims in both places. So federal prosecutors in New York decided his plea agreement previously didn't cover everything. It covered the victims in Florida. There were victims in New York. We're going to pursue the case for those victims in New York, and that's kind of what brought us here today. They also have said that, look, we were not a party to that plea agreement down in Florida. This is New York. We're bringing these charges, even though, you know, the conducted issue is old. It's 2002 to 2005. So the fact that this case is being brought in New York and that there is that there are concerns from a lot of people that the previous plea agreement was way too lenient, what is that what does that mean for the Labor Secretary Alex Acosta? We'll have to see how this affects his standing in President Trump's eyes. It's certainly going to raise questions about geez, the conduct at issue was very similar back then to what's being alleged now. Why did you allow this sweetheart deal when prosecutors in New York, you know, take him off his private plane, search his home, throw him in MCC for at least a weekend, and they want to keep him in jail until his trial? So that could be a months-long endeavor even before he goes and kind of answers for the charges, I think there would be a lot of questions, renewed questions. Alex Acosta has already faced immense questions about this, but renewed questions about why he signed off on this deal that was just so sweet. And as he said, Epstein is an old friend of the president. Has Donald Trump said anything about this? Well, many, many years ago now, back in 2002, Donald Trump, I think, was interviewed as part of a, a news story about Jeffrey Epstein, a profile of Jeffrey Epstein. And he said something like, I've known Jeff for 15 years, terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Has the president said anything more recently about this new set of charges? I don't believe the president today has addressed these new charges yet. His supporters, since there has been a tension on Epstein and the handling of his case, have tried to distance the president from Epstein. They were both Manhattan guys. I think it's pretty clear that they knew each other by President Trump's account, knew each other for years. But President Trump more recently has sort of distanced himself from Epstein. Some of these accusations came out you know, before these, these, this previous round of criminal charges, but then more of them have come out over the last decade. I wonder if these kinds of accusations are being taken more seriously now because of the kind of climate that we're in, where there is more pressure to hold, hold men to account, especially powerful men, when they are in a position to abuse women. I think you can't ignore the impact that 
the climate is having on the way prosecutors are handling this now. They're treating Epstein totally differently than they did in the past, you know, hauling him off his private plane, searching his home, letting him stay in jail at least over the weekend and pushing for much more. And also just in the way that they're talking about the case. You know, you had this kind of remarkable press conference where the um, assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York field office is talking about the importance of these cases and and also sort of actively asking victims to come forward and giving them a step-by-step -step of how you call into the Bureau and what numbers you should press to get through. The number to call is 1-800-CALL-FBI. I'd like to take a moment to speak directly to the victims who will call that number. When you call that number, you'll receive a series of prompts. You'll be asked if this is representing a major case in the country. The answer is yes, it's number four. You will then be driven to the top of the list, and the Jeffrey Epstein matter is number one on the major case list in the country when you call that 1-800-CALL-FBI number. Your bravery might just empower others to speak out about crimes committed against them. It's important to remember there never was, nor will there be, an excuse for this kind of behavior. We know that reliving these events can be brutal. We are here to work side by side with you as you go through this process. You should know that in the eyes of the FBI, you come first. I think this climate has made it so law enforcement is maybe more keen on these cases than they were in the past. This FBI assistant director talked about how in some places sex trafficking cases can get overlooked. The victims come from very vulnerable communities. This case has the added wrinkle that these victims were paid to recruit others. And I think some prosecutors maybe in the past might have said, oh, that's, that's just kind of icky. We don't want to go there. But the FBI now, probably because of the current climate, they're much more interested in this. You can sort of hear it in the FBI assistant director's voice. And just in the way that he appealed to victims, come forward, we are interested in this now. I think the U.S. attorney also talked about how you could, you know, inspire others by coming forward. And that definitely seemed, feels to me like it's part and parcel to this climate, this Me Too moment that we're kind of still in. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Washington Post. On Monday afternoon, Jeffrey Epstein appeared in federal court, but he will remain in custody, at least for the time being. He has a bail hearing scheduled for next Monday. What do you do? I'm Michael Cranish. I'm a political investigative reporter at The Washington Post. And why did you decide to look into how President Trump got accepted to the University of Pennsylvania? President Trump has made a big issue of his Wharton education at the University of Pennsylvania. I went to the hardest school to get into, the best school in the world, I guess you could say, the Wharton School of Finance. So I went to the Wharton School of Finance, which is considered the best business school, okay? Got to be very smart to get into that school, very smart. And this was the undergraduate school. People sometimes confuse it with the graduate school, which is probably better known, harder to get into. But in this case, 
Trump has said this was the hardest school to get into. It's like super genius stuff. I, I came out, I built a tremendous company. I had tremendous success. The art of the deal, the apprentice, everything. And he talks about this all the time. I mean, you counted the number of times that he's brought this up publicly. So since 2018, January, at least 14 occasions when he's talked about his own attendance at Wharton. He's also mentioned Wharton in other contexts. But it's pretty frequent. And during the campaign, specifically, he brought this up because there are people who do question his intellect. And he's tried to use this to refute that. The Rubios of the world cannot get into that school, believe me. They don't have the capacity. Actually, Cruz could, in all fairness. Cruz could. I don't know that he has the temperament. I think neither has the temperament, but academically, certainly. But I go to Wharton. I'm smart. And so you decided that you were going to go back and figure out what the process was of President Trump getting accepted into Wharton. Right. So just looking very clearly, he said this was the hardest school to get into. Was it the hardest school to get into? No, it was not. Today's acceptance rate at the University of Pennsylvania, it's very tough. It's an Ivy League school. It's 7.4% or so to get into the University of Pennsylvania today. That's hard. At the time Trump was applying in 1966, the acceptance rate was more than 50%. It was much easier to get into at the time. So, And there are other schools that were harder to get into. So the statement that it was the hardest school to get into just it can't be quantified in the way he puts it. So how was it that President Trump ended up at Wharton? Well, what happened was Donald Trump's older brother, Fred Trump Jr., he had actually applied to Wharton University of Pennsylvania 10 years earlier with a very close friend named James Nolan. Uh, James Nolan and Fred Trump Jr. had gone to high school together. They were very close friends. And when the two of them applied earlier to University of Pennsylvania, uh, Nolan got in, but Fred Trump Jr. did not. Years later, Nolan became an admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania. Fred Trump Jr. knew that his brother Donald wanted to go to Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He called up his old friend, James Nolan, and said, basically, can you interview my brother for admission to the University of Pennsylvania? And James Nolan said yes. All righty. Okay. So you went to actually talk to James Nolan in person. Um, I did. That's, you're, you're in the basement of uh, the Trump home. Yeah. And... James Nolan is 81 years old. Uh, he was a junior admissions officer when he interviewed Donald Trump. He later was the director of undergraduate admissions at Penn. You described yourself as one of Fred Trump Jr.'s best friends for right. a time period. During my, during my high school Yeah. I visited him at his apartment uh, in Philadelphia, not far from the University of Pennsylvania campus. He has not spoken, according to him, on the record publicly before until now. And we had a, a good long talk. What do you recall him saying about Donald? Uh, the first time I remember talking about Donald was when he called me. I was working in the Penn Admissions Office. Uh, had started fairly recently. And um, he called me and said, Jimmy, remember, you remember my brother Donald, which I did. He said, he's at Fordham and he would like to transfer to Wharton. Will you interview him? I was happy to do that. But that was really the first time that I remember meeting Donald. What was he like? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> quiet, well-behaved, you know, trying to make a good impression, which kids do in interviews for sure. I guess anybody does in an interview. Uh, <clears throat> uh, unremarkable. 
So his story is that um, he did interview Donald Trump. He was the only person to interview Donald Trump. He gave him a rating that essentially said this person's qualified. It was up to Nolan's boss, who he says is no longer living, to do the final approval. But Nolan's the only individual who actually interviewed Trump for the admission. At the time that Trump was applying, he was actually applying as a transfer student. And when he talked to Nolan, what did he say about his recollections of what kind of student Donald Trump was at that time and what kind of intellect he had? Well, Donald Trump at first went to Fordham near his home in Queens, so Fordham's in the Bronx, and he was there for two years. He said when he interviewed Trump that looking at the grades from Fordham, which, of course, he's not allowed to reveal and didn't reveal to me, but he said they must have been respectable enough for me to interview him and give him a rating to to get in. It was easier for transfer students to get in to Penn, as it often is today, because you've got two years of records. You could say, look, I'm a college student. I did reasonably well in these classes. Um, Positions often open up because people drop out. So for certain transfer students, it is easier to get in on top of the fact that it was easier to get in overall at that time uh, into Penn. So he'd done well enough in that respect. We don't know exactly how well, and Trump has not said. But the image that President Trump has painted that to be accepted to Wharton at that time means that you must have been some kind of, quote-unquote, super genius, Nolan kind of pushed back on that. I know his grades are private, but do you have any recollection about what they were like relatively from Fordham? Were they exceptional? Were they average? No, I I don't remember what his SATs were, but I I certainly was not struck by... uh, and he says that I'm sitting before a genius. Or a super genius, to use his words. Certainly not a super genius. I mean, that's a pretty high bar. I mean, a genius and super genius, I mean, that's extraordinary. However you quantify that. I mean, there's, is there a scale? You know, what does that mean exactly? But Trump has said, you know, this was super genius stuff. So he's the one who set this bar like he has. And you talked to some of the other people who attended Wharton at the same time as Trump. What did they say about their memories of the president back then? Right. Well, I talked to one individual who went to uh, real estate classes with Trump. And I should, as I say this, I should explain that there were many students who went to Wharton. Many students say they don't remember Trump. Trump was in a small real estate segment. Maybe there was a half dozen students in a certain class, for example. So there's only a small number of students who actually do remember being in class with Trump. So I did talk to one individual, for example, who was in class with him. In fact, this individual led a study group for the real estate class. He remembers Trump showing up at a couple of study groups and then not showing up after that. Uh, And he said that that's partly because perhaps the professor in the class said the most important thing here is to come to my lectures. So after that point, this this fellow student said he remembers Trump closing his book, not coming to another study group, but did show up in the class. So he was basically, according to this student, Trump was only showing up to things that he needed to show up to. Well, this student said Trump did what he needed to do. He saw this as a prestigious school and that it was a good thing to have, you know, on his resume to have gone there. Um, But he did what was needed to pass that class. And in your reporting, were you able to determine what kind of student Trump was at Wharton? Well, Trump has said that he, quote, heard, quote, unquote, that he was first in his class. He doesn't say that he was. It was reported in the 70s on several occasions that he was first in his class without attribution. And that legend sort of grew. It was repeated again and again in many profiles. There's no evidence of it. There's no document that shows that. If you look at the um, dean's list for the year that he graduated, he's not on the dean's list of 56 students out of about 366. 
He does show up as graduating, but in the graduation commencement program, he doesn't get the Latin honors, magna cum laude or cum laude and so forth. So there's none of those top honors that presumably you would have if you were the uh, top student uh, in your class. So Trump has done a very Trumpian thing, saying he's heard that he was first in his class, but he hasn't actually said that he was. But the fact that we don't really know about what his grades were there, that's kind of ironic because President Trump was often very skeptical of of President Obama's grades and had publicly called for Obama to release his grades from Columbia and Harvard and basically suggesting that he wasn't a great student. Right. Well, he had said, well, he'd heard, quote-unquote, that Obama was a terrible, quote-unquote, student. Of course, Obama edited the Harvard Law Review. I mean, there's no evidence that he was a terrible student. In fact, that's a pretty high honor to receive. Um, But he did throw that out uh, against Obama. I believe it was in 2011, challenging Obama to release his transcripts. In fact, Donald Trump has said to Fordham through his lawyer, I'll sue you if you release my grades, said the same thing to Penn. Trump himself has not released his own transcripts. From your reporting, what is your sense of how President Trump's experience at this prestigious business school changed him or or influenced him? Well, Trump went to Wharton. He was there in class. He didn't stay there during weekends. He went home to work in his father's business. Later on, when he wrote his autobiography, or it was ghostwritten, but his name's on it, uh, The Art of the Deal, um, he said, you know, that the degree didn't necessarily mean that much, but he became aware of the fact that many people put a lot of stock in the fact that he went to Wharton. So he talked about it a lot. So that, that is, I think, revealing. He wrote that in 1987. He graduated in 68. So he's talking there about, he sees the impact. He sees this makes a difference to people that they're impressed by the fact that he was a graduate of Wharton. Why do you think it's important to go back and report on this relatively short period in in President Trump's life? Well, it's really because of what Trump has said. He's talked about this repeatedly. As recently as June 19th, he mentioned that he went to Wharton. He was at a ceremony giving a a, a award to an economist named Arthur Laffer, who invented what was called the Laffer Curve. In 1999, Time magazine named Dr. Laffer one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. Former Wall Street Journal reporter, Jude Warniski wrote, in studying public finance, there is nothing more important than an appreciation of the Laffer curve. And uh, Trump, during that uh, statement, said that um, he had studied the Laffer curve many times when he was a student at the Wharton School. I've heard and studied the Laffer curve for many years, the Wharton School of Finance. It's a very important thing that you've done, Art. Very important. Well, he graduated in 68. Laffer Curve was written out by Arthur Laffer in 1974. So that would have been impossible. But he keeps on bringing this up. You know, how good he was at Warden. Wait, so so this economic theory was invented after President Trump was actually in school, but he talks about it all the time as a thing that he, like, became an expert on while he was in school? That's what he said last month at the White House, yes. (laughs) What do you make of that? Maybe he misremembered. Maybe he's talking about other things. But, um, you know, it's just something that didn't compute. You just look at the the, the years and the timeline. It doesn't add up. But it, it does seem like in all of these different ways, this seems to be a time that President Trump figures out that it's not always about, like, the truth of how much you were actually learning, but about the name and the brand and the sort of reputation that comes along with it. I think that's very insightful. He really does put a lot of stock in that. He learned a lot about branding, obviously putting his own names on on building after building. So he sees that people do recognize there's some value in that. 
Trump has made this a foundational story of his biography. Time and again, he will talk about going to Wharton, that getting into Wharton was incredibly hard. He'll bring this up again and again when people question him or his intellect in some way or question the types of words that he uses or whether he reads books. And he'll say, look, I went to the hardest school there was to get into, and it was super genius stuff. So it's something that he comes back to, dips in that well again and again and again as recently as a few weeks ago. So clearly it's important to him. He brings it up and casts it in the most extraordinary light, saying how hard it was and super genius. Um, when in reality, according to the admissions office that I interviewed, it wasn't that difficult to use his words at the time. Michael Cranish is an investigative political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing from Rome Bureau Chief Chico Harlan. There's a consortium of Parmigiano-Reggiano producers in Italy. It is a cartel in a way, in that they enforce the production process. And these Italian producers of Parmesan cheese have one very big enemy, the producers of American Parmesan cheese. In English, it's spelled differently, with an S instead of a G for Jano. This would be the kind of thing that you see, not just as like the craft Parmesan in a shaker, but, you know, other cheeses that are hard, but that are made in America. They went to the New York Fancy Food Show last year. And as part of this, they brought an empty suitcase and filled it up with American Parmesan. They went to some Whole Foods locations, maybe some bodegas. New York has any kind of options. So they return to Italy with this trunk full of Parmesan, and they test it. They have a laboratory. They scrutinize it for for heavens knows what kind of variables. I don't think they were ever going to find a cheese where they decided, oh, this is superior. We've been doing it the wrong way for 900 years. But they, they they were happy to tell me their conclusions, which is that these cheeses don't stack up. And in fact, they don't even acknowledge them as Parmesan. They just say that this is cheese. What is it? It's just a generic hunk of cheese. Italy is trying to police the fake cheese, as they call it. They have a government office, a not small government office, with several hundred employees that operates out of Rome, where they try to patrol the internet. And if Italy sees these sort of knockoff Italian products being sold into the European Union or in other countries that have agreed to uphold Europe-type rules, they can go after this cheese. Italy's government is not exactly in love with the European Union, but they are heavily reliant on Europe to, to be the attack dog. So this is an example where Italy kind of strikes the pose of being always the fish-shaking country that is frustrated with the EU, but they're thankful to be in the EU as well. Chico Harlan is the Rome bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.